only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Greetings to you as we inch closer to the green flag of the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. As a matter of fact, we would technically be, in terms of days on this program at least, we are on what I never for, I, I never remember, Mike. Is it the parade lap, then the pace lap, or the pace lap, then the parade lap? It goes parade and parade. Pace, yes, right? parades first and then pace lap. Okay. And, and it seems like each year now there are a few more of those. Have you noticed that? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, like I'm I, didn't, up in the, I didn't even really think about that. I'm up yeah. at the perch and in the headstands, I hear him say, one more to go at the line. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't we coming around now? Yeah. Well, don't forget, they're not trying to hit it exactly a time like they did back in the day. Remember, it was it was right on the hour. It's always interesting to me to listen back to the old air checks. And and they said the race started right on the hour. And, you know, WIBC at the time would be playing the, the chime right at the top of the hour so you'd you know you'd hear sid say and the race is on and then there'd be a chime in the middle of it well that chime was the top of the hour you know sounder so i mean they really nailed it back in the day where it would happen at the exact top of the hour that is the voice by the way mike thompson my name is jake query good evening to you this is beyond the bricks our look and discussion of the indianapolis 500 mile race historically speaking pop culture speaking we've talked about music on the show we've talked about collectibles on the show and we have talked about the legendary drivers, both of yesteryear and the current crop on this program. Tonight, we're going to do something fun, which is, Mike, I know that you are excited about this, and that is, there are names of the Indianapolis 500 with which we are very familiar, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we know a lot about the gentlemen, maybe, and what they sounded like to a great extent. Yeah, I mean, when you think about all the great names, you look at all the different roster of winners, but but with the you know, fact that the race wasn't on radio all those years and and obviously television didn't even exist uh, for many of those years, you know, having sound of the of the winning drivers in a lot of cases, you know, people have said, you know, hey, I've never heard what Ray Haroon sounded like at any point or or Ralph De Palma or some of these guys or, you know, wouldn't it be great? And I've never I've never found this, but wouldn't it be great if we had a uh, interview with Jimmy Murphy or Frank Lockhart or things like that? I mean, that to me would be really, really amazing things to unearth. So what I thought it would be kind of cool to do tonight is, you know, find some of these winners from the past that people may not have ever gotten to hear on the radio or in any kind of form and and let folks uh you know kind of hear what they sounded like so let's begin with the very first winner of the indianapolis 500 mile race and let's get to know a little bit about ray haroon i think his story mike is well documented for fans of the race itself diehard fans are well aware of some of the side notes of ray haroon we know that he worked for the Marmon Corporation, which was the car manufacturer that created the Wasp, which is the car that he ran in the 1911 Indianapolis 500. Many may not realize that at that time, he started in the 28th position in the year that he won the race, and he actually is the furthest back that's tied for the furthest back that a driver has ever started the race to win. 
conventional wisdom, Mike would tell people, well, gosh, that's impressive that he won if he only had the 28th fastest car on the track. That isn't the case because it wasn't like today in terms of a qualifying setup for where you were going to start the race, but rather simply whether or not you were a procrastinator when it came to entering, right? Yeah, it was based on when you entered the race back in that early days. Of course, don't forget, as Donald always points out, and I think this is this is a really astute thing. I mean, obviously, Donald says a lot of really astute things, but what Donald always says about the early days of the Indianapolis 500 is it wasn't the Indianapolis 500, meaning it wasn't the event we know today. It didn't have the history. They were making the history up as they went along. So... Um, back then they were taking entries and so as the entries came in that was your starting position and then later on you you qualified on speed and and the starting grid was determined by speed but back then they were you know again they were making this all up as they went along and so Haroon did start 28th but it wasn't because his car wasn't uh you know faster than any of the 27 cars in front of him it was a situation with uh the when the entry blanks and things like that were submitted Ray Haroon, in 1911, it is well documented, I believe, Mike. He was the only driver, if I'm not mistaken, without a riding mechanic, correct? That's correct. But, as many people know, that's not to say that he did not have assistance in seeing what was going on around him from a safety standpoint, right? Well, of course. If you ever have seen the the famous film, and I know that... uh... Our friends at RTV6 have uh, played this film the last few years, which I think is really cool that they do this. They they did a film. The first thing that ever appeared on Channel 6 was a film called The Crucible of Speed. And it's a film where uh, it was put together, and Ray Haroon appears in that film sitting in the Marmon Wasp. And Ralph De Palma is actually in that film as well. And there's a, there's a guy who's playing the role. He's not actually a reporter, but he's playing the role as if he's a reporter. And and they come around, and, and here's Ray Haroon with the Marmon Wasp. And back then, that's when the Marmon Wasp had that uh, kind of garish writing on it that said 1911 winner. And uh, Ray Haroon explains to uh, the man playing the role of the reporter for the uh, sake of the film that, uh, you know, he said, the other other drivers thought I'd be unsafe, so I rigged up this little gadget, and he taps the, the rearview mirror that he had, you know, the kind of crude, rudimentary rearview mirror that he came up with that, that he put on the, the Marmon, the, that we know as the Marmon Wasp. Now, Haroon himself, Mike, and Donald has talked about this. If you go to, and I don't know if you've been, in Anderson is, is Ray Haroon's final resting place. And Ray Haroon did live to be, you know, an older man. Uh, he passed away, as a matter of fact, just a week after his 89th birthday, I believe, if my math math is correct. But he passed away in Anderson, if I'm not mistaken, but he is his final resting place is in Anderson, Indiana. And a couple of years ago, Mark Janes, who is the chief announcer for the IMS Radio Network and I, as a matter of fact, I believe it was for the 100th year of the 500, we drove up to Anderson and left a bottle of milk at his headstone. But it's a rather humble headstone. It's not like there's a huge thing indicating that this is the resting place of the first Indy 500 winner. Yeah, it's, um, you know, what's interesting, and we'll we'll hear a little bit from Ray Haroon here in a little bit, but what's interesting about Ray Haroon is 
he really didn't get a lot of recognition as the first winner until much later in his life. Now, we're going to hear an interview here in a little bit um, that Sid did, and I'll explain a little bit about that interview coming up in a, a few minutes. But really, it was later, especially when it came to uh, as what Sid called the golden anniversary 500 in 1961. Interest about Ray Haroon started really ramping up a little bit that year because he was he was there. He drove the Marmon Wasp in pre-race ceremonies that year. He was seen around the Speedway a lot. Uh, he signed a lot more autographs that year in 1961 than I think he had prior to that, to be candid with you, because of the fact that people said, oh, wait, that's the guy who won the first Indianapolis 500. And so... It really was kind of, I don't want to say a coming out party, but it really was the first time that he had been really um, honored in that way. And I think it was a, a situation where, um, you know, he became much more well-known um, than he had been in previous years. I mean, it really the, the focus and the spotlight was back on Ray Haroon in 1961 in the 50th anniversary of, of his win. And for the next about, you know, four or five, six years, he was he was coming back to the speedway and he was signing more autographs and things like that than he had been because you know people said hey wait a minute you know again this is what donald talks about by the 60s the indianapolis 500 was a thing right it was it was a major major event and so you wanted to meet the guy who won the first indianapolis 500 at that point so uh ray haroon certainly became much more of a, a celebrity later in his life uh the last few years of his life because of the fact that uh you know, the 500 had become as big as it was. Ray Haroon was somebody who began his racing career essentially as a speed racer, short-distance speed racer, essentially. As the automobile came about and was getting developed into a mode of transportation as a progression beyond the horse and buggy, part of the exhibit, if you will, of the automobile was to show the speeds in which it could run. And land speed records became a thing. And around the Midwest in particular, or driving from one place to the next, it wasn't necessarily yeah. about going out to a racetrack to watch an exhibit as much as it was, did you hear? A man got in this new machine and took it from Chicago to New York in X amount of time. Yeah, it was called point-to-point -point racing. Right. So those type of events were um, certainly big in that era. It's all, it was a little bit different than what we know as a you know a – one specific track, uh, those type of events were certainly much more prevalent in that era. And then when the Indianapolis Motor Speedway came about, when Carl Fisher decided that it would be a good idea to have an exhibition place, for lack of a better phrase, for this new invention to captivate people's attention and the marketing, to an extent, of the automobile, at that time, Ray Haroon had essentially started to wind down his career, Mike, but even though he won the first international sweepstakes or the first of these 500-mile races that would later become known as the Indianapolis 500, he was an active driver at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway aside from that, and people don't realize that they had a number of different auxiliary races in, you know, from the time that the track was completed before the 1911 Indy 500, and he won eight of them. Johnny Aitken is the all-time winningest driver in the history of the Speedway with 15 race wins, and I'm talking about 100-milers and 200-miles and things like that, or afternoon races, sometimes two or three races in a day. But Ray Haroon was an accomplished driver of that before he finally matched wits to say, 
let's build a car for a 500-mile race. Yeah, he he had a lot of success at the Speedway before he ever entered the Indianapolis 500 as we know it today. He he won a number of different events, and and as you said, he he was very well known. It wasn't uh, he wasn't a guy that was like oh surprise winner of the first race or somebody you know that the folks had never heard of. I mean he he had plenty of success out there at at uh, 16th and georgetown so he had to be coaxed a little bit um you know he had as you said he had basically retired and had to be coaxed a little bit of coming out of retirement to run uh the marmon the what we know as the marmon was the type 32 and you know obviously did an outstanding job but uh you know that wasn't really i don't think his first choice i think he had basically decided at the end of the 1910 season as we know it you know that he had he was done doing active racing um and then the last time he drove in competition in a what we know as a triple a sanctioned race was the 1911 indianapolis 500 now he maintained a lifestyle within the automobile industry after retiring from the 1911 indianapolis 500 as a matter of fact ray haroon ultimately opened up uh, a car company the haroon motor car company in wayne michigan by the mid-1910s, in 1916 to be specific. He worked in a number of capacities involved in just the engineering and development of the automobile until his retirement. And then, as I had mentioned, he ultimately passed away about 10 years after retirement. But to Mike's point, and I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, eventually it got to the point with this event and it got to the the point of the event that we will see running for the 105th time on Sunday, that to win the Indianapolis 500 immediately catapulted you into fame and fortune within the racing industry and, to a great extent, fame beyond the racing niche, especially in, say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where you had drivers from multiple disciplines from around the world testing themselves against the best, and seeing who could win Indianapolis. So if you were to win Indianapolis by the time Bobby Unser did so, or Rick Mears did so, or Danny Sullivan did so, that put you on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That put you in the epicenter of the wide world of sports, and your name was known and transcendent almost immediately after taking the checkered flag. But for Ray Haroon, in the early years, it was the Marmon that won the 500. It was the Marmon Wasp that was the car. It was the National and not Joe Dawson that won in 1912, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't until the later years for Ray Haroon that, in fact, he became known as Ray Haroon, first winner of the Indianapolis 500. For example, here is an interview from 1951. So this would be 40 years after the Marmon Wasp, correct? Mike, set us up what we're going to hear in terms of Sid Collins and Ray Haroon. Okay, so this is uh, a lot of times you hear that this interview was conducted in 1961. That's actually not accurate. This was from a what was called the Borg Warner Party. And to your point about how big the 500 became, let's remember in 1911, Ray Haroon wins the 500. There was no party for him the next year for Borg Warner because the trophy didn't exist at the time. So a lot of times you'll hear that this this uh, interview was conducted in 1961. That's actually not accurate. Sid, uh, for the Mutual Broadcasting System in 1951, did a show live at the Borg Warner Party where he basically set up a remote microphone, had folks walk by, and he would interview them very briefly, uh, one to two minutes each, for a nationwide audience. And he had several drivers come by, celebrities, 
Um, and one of the people that he spoke to on that day was Ray Haroon, and this is the interview. Now, here's a man who raced in the days when we had 40 cars in the race. Correct me if I'm wrong, sir. It was correct. in 1911, the very first race here at Indianapolis. I know you'll recognize the name the second I say it, Mr. Ray Haroon. How do you do, folks? It used to take a long time to finish those races, but we finally got through. Mr. Haroon, how, how long was the race in which you won in 1911? Well, it was about six hours and some odd minutes. Uh, and these days, we can pretty well cross the country and back in that right. time, can't we? That's right. How does the track look to you since the old days when you first raced here? Well, it looks a lot better. When I first raced here, it was brick and it wasn't too smooth. What kind of a car did you have, sir? That was a Marmon. And have you noticed many improvements these days? Oh, yes. They only weigh about half as much and uh, about four times as much horsepower. Do you still follow racing pretty closely? Oh, yes, in a way. I, don't, I get down here all, as often as I can. What's the last trip you made to Indianapolis, sir? About two years ago. I see. Well, come back often and see I us. Sure we're always will. glad I to hope, have you. I hope I'll be back here on the golden anniversary, which won't be too long. Well, we're certainly looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Mr. Ray Haroon, the winner of the first 500-mile race. Along with Sid Collins there for Borg Warner. What's interesting is he made reference to the golden anniversary, and it was after, immediately after the golden anniversary of the Indianapolis 500 that Ray Haroon went on national television to talk about it, and he did so with the winner of the 50th race, who himself is as well-known today with the 500 as is Ray Haroon. We'll let you hear who he was with and that nationally televised segment when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. I'm Paul Page. From Papyrus, this is IndyCar Racing 2. Heck yes. I feel almost like at this point I should hear prepare to qualify. Right? Exactly. I, wow. I spent a lot of time on IndyCar Racing too. Uh, welcome back to Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jake Quarry. Mike Thompson here along with me as we're talking about some of the old audio and the drivers of yesteryear with the world's greatest race talking about Ray Haroon. You heard from him just a minute ago talking about the 40th anniversary Indianapolis 500-mile race back in 1951, and he had mentioned – that he would love to be at the golden anniversary in 1961. I actually don't know, Mike. I assume that he did make it to the grounds of the race. For no, the no, he did. As I just said, he drove he drove the Marmon Wasp prior to the race okay, in sorry. 1961. He was, he was on the grounds and drove the Wasp. Clearly paying attention there. <laughs> um, and the Marmon Wasp, of course, has been driven by Parnelli Jones, drove it before the race, you know, since then. So he did make it back for the 50th. But here is, to me, what is fascinating. The 50th Indi uh, Indianapolis 500, the golden anniversary, uh, 50th year, it wasn't the 50th running, but it was the 50th year of the race, was won by A.J. Foyt. It was the first win for A.J. Foyt. And you would think that because A.J. Foyt won the Indianapolis 500, and you would think that, you know, for that fact, that A.J. Foyt would have been immediately recognizable. It's kind of like that movie Slumdog Millionaire, if you've ever seen that movie where the one fallacy in that movie, which is a fantastic film, but the kid is on a nationally, everybody in India is paying attention to this game show, and then as soon as he leaves, he needs to find his girlfriend, and he goes back to the train station, and no one knows who he is. And it's like, wait a minute, wouldn't everyone recognize him? I would have guessed that A.J. Foyt in 1961, by winning the Indianapolis 500, would have been an immediately recognized star overnight. But there was a game show that aired on CBS back at that time, 
And the host was Gary Moore, the presenter, as he was known. And it was called I've Got a Secret, right? And the idea of the show was you would go on this show, and let's say it would be, um, you know, I don't know, a, a man who had just parachuted off of the Empire State Building. And so he would come out and sit down, and they had a panelist of, of celebrities of the day that would ask yes-no questions, kind of like 20 questions, and then you had to determine what the secret or what it was about this man that made him famous. In 1961, A.J. Foyt had just won the golden anniversary of the Indianapolis 500. He appeared on I've Got a Secret, but he appeared with another gentleman, just over the age of 70, Ray Haroon, who was on the program as well, and they both had a secret. The secret, of course, being that Foyt had just won the Indianapolis 500, and he was joined by the man who had won the first Indianapolis 500 50 years prior. Here is the conversation as Gary Moore, as the panel, had just figured out the connection between these two men. Years ago, which is just marked. At a tremendous speed at that time. Absolutely. We'll bring that out. Now, Mr. Fawns, you certainly wrote a thrilling, and I must say somewhat frightening race last week. Now, what was your average speed? A little over 139 miles an hour. 139 miles average. Now, Mr. Haroon, what was your average speed in the first Indianapolis race in 1911? Just a little under 75 miles an hour. Now, think of that. Our conception of speed has changed so radically in the past 50 years. But your rate was considered quite phenomenal at the time, was it not? Well, we thought it was, yes. It was more than a mile a minute in 1911. Uh, Sir, was the Indianapolis 500 as dangerous then as it is now? Well, it isn't any more dangerous now, I don't think, than it was then. But uh, it's it's still safer than it is riding on the highways with some of these hot (laughs) rodders. That is a matter of opinion. There you go. I've got a secret back from 1961 with the guy who apparently was as quick with the wit on the lip as he was behind a race car talking about Ray Haroon and joined by A.J. Foyt. Now, it turns out in 1911 you heard the speed mentioned by Ray Haroon. It was up to 89.84 miles an hour by 1915. And Ralph De Palma, who had won that event back in 1915, lived for another 41 years he passed away in 1956 did De Palma but he is another one Mike who did some interviews talking about his early years of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Ralph De Palma was very proud of winning the Indianapolis 500 I think but you know it's interesting to me listening to the clip we're about to listen to I think he might be as proud of the way he lost the 1912 Indianapolis 500 for those who might not remember he he dominated that race the car came apart with just a couple laps to go, and he and his uh, mechanic, Rupert Jeffkins, tried to push the car home to still win the race. And Joe Dawson, who only led uh, the last two laps, uh, came across and won the race. That ended up being the record for the uh, the shortest distance led by an Indianapolis 500 winner until Dan Weldon won, leading only the last few hundred yards in 2011. So I think De Palma... De Palma was very, he was lauded by, you know, people saying what sportsmanship, you know, trying to push your car home to victory after this, you know, crushing defeat. And De Palma was one of the great race car drivers of his era. And and he was almost, almost a Tony Kanaan figure in that people, you know, really wanted him to get a victory after the fact that he came so close, you know, a few years before. And, and he finally got his victory a couple of years later. But you'll hear in this clip, 
Um, you know, he's very proud to have won the 1915 race, but I think he's just as proud with the fact that uh, he dominated the 1912 race and almost won and, and was lauded for his, his sportsmanship. And this interview was conducted in what year? I believe 1955. I think it's a, it was conducted about a year before Ralph De Palma passed away. So likewise, this was 40 years to the win, just like when Ray Haroon talked to Sid, it was 40 years to the yep, win. That's correct. Uh, here is the veteran of 10 Indianapolis 500s, and of course the winner in the 1915 race, Ralph De Palma. Back in the Pagoda once again, and here he is now an automotive consultant with the General Petroleum Corporation in Los Angeles, California. Winner of the race in 1915, Ralph De Palma. Welcome to the Pagoda and the 500-mile race, sir. There's many thanks for this opportunity. I was afraid you wouldn't call on me. You had so many famous men here. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get a chance. You know, I'm really very happy. I whenever I can, Mr. De Palma. Thank you You raced Sid. here before the 500-mile race. Actually raced there, didn't you? Yes, of course, Sid. You're too young to remember, but I was here the very first race in 1909 when it was only... 300 miles, and they stopped the race, as you know, at 220 miles because of some accidents. I finished second that year with a Fiat car. In 1910, I was not here because it was not, just had short races. In 1911, I finished fifth with a Simplex. That's the year that Ray Haroon, that great boy, won the contest. Of course, 1912, everyone knows what happened to Ralph Obama. I pushed a car five-eighths of a mile and didn't get a dime. There was no lap money those days, and no consolation money. So I wished I was racing today, but not at the speed, not even at 124 miles an hour that they are doing today. But you did win the race in 1915. I did win it in 1915 at the great speed, just think, 89.84 miles per hour. They do that in second gear now. How often have you been back here to the Speedway for the races since that time? I've only missed seven races here since its beginning. I'd like to go back a little bit further. How fast did you go in 1909? 53 miles per hour average in 1909. Of course, you know, in 1911, the average was 74 miles an hour that Ray Haroon won. I believe they push them that fast these days. Uh, I thought I pushed my car 53 miles per hour. You did a wonderful job, and your name is legendary here at the Speedway in automobile racing. Very nice to have had you on our broadcast. Thank you very much, Mr. DePaulo. I've always had a lot of fun here, Sid. I enjoy coming to the great spectacular, I tell you. The greatest race course in the world, bar none. That, again, was Ralph De Palma, who you might have noticed an accent there. Kind of an, just an unusual cadence in general in the way he spoke. I hope I'm pronouncing the name of the town correctly. He was born in Troyes, Italy. I assume that that's the correct way of saying it. In 1915, you heard him mention the prize money. He didn't get any when he pushed his car across, but when he won the race in 1915, he received the total prize of $22,600. And then he was talking to... Sid Collins in that race 40 years later while he was sitting and it was moments away, I assume, during the course of that race. That was on race day, right? During the broadcast. Yep, that's right. So he's sitting there and he's watching. Would you like to guess what the purse was in 1955, Mike? Oh, uh, for the winner or overall? For the winner. Sorry. Oh, um, uh, $73,000. Wow. It's pretty darn good. Bob Swikert took home $76,139. Hey, so I'm, I'm under. This is the price is right, so I get the win. I that win the showcase, impressive. right? That is impressive. All right. You do win the showcase. Um, Ralph De Palma, that's a pretty fascinating interview because, and I love this, Mike. I love the fact that we're getting a chance now to hear from guys that maybe we didn't hear a lot from, and we will again here coming up in a matter of moments, but 
he sounded like a colorful personality. He was. He was absolutely a colorful per- personality. That's one of the reasons I love those type of interviews, and that's why, I was, again, I was so excited about this show tonight because, you know, Sid would occasionally have Ralph De Palma, Pete DiPaolo. I mean, Pete DiPaolo, obviously, he lived a long life and was on several times, but he had one time, Sid had Billy Arnold on, who you know, dominated the 1930 race, led all but two laps. You know, these are guys that we didn't really get to ever hear from much. So the fact that these, you know, Sid conducted these interviews and we've been able to preserve those type of interviews, it's really important, I think, historically to be able to hear Ralph De Palma's voice. I mean, this guy won the 1915 Indianapolis 500. And now tonight in 2021, we were just able to play a clip of him talking. I I really find that fascinating. We talked about collecting last night, you know, which I really enjoyed that show, taking the the calls of the folks. I enjoy collecting, uh, you know, audio. I really do. I I find it fascinating because I I like to have these things where we're able to hear from these folks that have that have been gone for you know since the fifties or the sixties. You know, it brings them back to life as far as I'm concerned. Now, just out of curiosity, the the audio that you have like this, do you have old reels, cassette tapes? I have, have re- converted I, I, it all. Yeah, I have reels and cassette tapes, but you know, a lot of these, you know, we. You know, these are available. The the Speedway has made a lot of these available for purchase. So a lot of the the old races are available for purchase. And in my previous career, I was able to help work on a lot of these um, these races that have been not heard for for decades and things like that. So, um, you know, you can even you know, folks at home can go on the Speedway's website and and IMS has made a number of these races available. So. I, I again I think that this is really fascinating but when I can when I can find those reels like for example remember on in week one when we were we are, had our friend Norman Borland you know from KWIK who gave us that scintillating play by that's right scintillating Here they come and there they go yeah scintillating play by play but but I you know I collect those type of things because you know that's midget racing audio from a, a low power radio station in the from the 1940s from Burbank California and I probably am the only person who has those those reels. So that kind of stuff comes up. I try to get that stuff when it's available. You do realize that, and I said it before, Sunday. Oh, you are doing that at some point, right? Here they are. There they go. <laughs> what lap number would you like me to call Yeah, them? You're going to do that, and then you also promised to do at the end of the race um, – Alexander Rossi, a, a smiling young lad from right. from California. Here he comes. He's a, he's a happy-looking boy as he works his way into turn number three from Nevada City, California. And I can tell you the smile. I can see it through the helmet. And he's got the thumb in the air. And, boy, I'll tell you what, his, his mother's going to be very happy, ladies. He's a good-looking boy, Kristen Airy. Here comes Alexander Rossi. Yeah, exactly. you got to work that in, too. It is funny how the the, the linguistics and just the, the you know the terminology of the era – I have noticed with Sid Collins, if you listen to old races, and I heard Ralph De Palma mention Ray Haroon there. How did he describe him? He said, like, the the good old boy or the good boy. Everything, everyone is a boy. You know, if you listen to the yep, old or races. Or a lad. You hear a yes. lad, lad used a lot, He's things a, like that. Well, there's a familiarity and there was a kind of a, I don't know, it's a, there was definitely a familiarity um, with, with folks, I think. And I... I think there was, it was just a different era, as you said, of of how folks talk to each other, especially in the booth. I think, I mean, especially and also, 
I've mentioned this, I think, a couple times on the program. I think Sid was, again, the master of ceremonies of the world's largest barbecue. So everybody was kind of in the family, right? Everyone who came in the booth, you're part of Sid's you know, extended family now. And, and, and now I'm going to introduce Ralph De Palma to all my family at home. And that's almost kind of how Sid handled the broadcast a little bit. I think the thing, Mike, and I really do hope this does not come off the wrong way. Um, by the way, that is Mike Thompson. My name is Jake Query, and this is Beyond the Bricks. We appreciate you tuning in to listen to us here on what is the, I don't know what the the third to the last show of something is. The the second to last is the penultimate. So this is the, uh, what, like the the Pen- preview of the penultimate? Penultimate Eve. That's the, the penultimate Eve. That's correct. Um, I never really think about this because it's a different category, and you just, it's not why you do it. But I am like you in the fact that I get so much pleasure and so much joy and so much fascination out of the old audio of old races and old interviews because it's like when you were a kid when you first discovered reading. And I remember reading Judy Bloom books when I was a kid, and I pictured in my mind what Central Park looked like, and it was this world that was being introduced to me, and that world was being illustrated in a way that it was up to me to figure out exactly what it looked like. And listening to the old races, I love because it allows me to picture in my mind what the world looked like as it's being described to me, but as my brain interprets it. And thinking about, and I try to, and I know that some people think it, I'm going to give a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here, I guess, but I do try, Mike, and I know that it probably gets mocked by a lot of people, Um probably even my own co-workers I try at least once per race on the broadcast to describe the color of the sky the formation of the clouds the level of sunshine versus overcast the wind and I try to do that because it probably is only one but I sometimes think to myself that there's the outside chance that 70 years from now a Mike Thompson or a Jake Query of the year 2100 is going to be listening, wondering what it looked like at the 105th Indy 500. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's part of the reason why I think Sid wanted all of his turn announcers, someone like you in the turn, no car was a blue car, right? It's a sky blue car or it's a pale blue car. It's a midnight blue car. It's that word picture. It's that, you know, it's that painting that picture. You know, it's a, it's not a red car. It's a cherry red or it's a fire engine red car. You guys are painting that picture for everyone. And there's going to be someone who's like me, you know, who's a kid in 2100 who's going, you know, they're going to they're going to appreciate that and they're going to say oh i wonder what kind of day it was because i know for a fact i've i've had to use those type of things for the wibc programs i produce you know what kind of day was it was it a sunny day was it an overcast day was it not a cloud in the sky it was a cobalt sky you know people are going to need those type of things so you know it's it's valuable the, the other thing mike that i will say it has nothing to do with me it is because of the event But I guess I never really grasp, and I don't mean this to sound, I don't want this to sound selfish at all. It is really, really surreal to me to think that that I have been allowed the responsibility of, in a very small sliver of way, 
being able to paint that picture that goes into a vault and is allowed for people who I will never meet to hear my voice and know what happened at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Well, I think I think that you and I, I you especially, obviously, much more so because you've you've had so many races and and you've gotten to do so many incredible things on the network, but. It, it's really gratifying, I think, and I hope the folks at home understand how much the network means to you and I. Um, I happen to be wearing a jacket right now that has the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network patch on it. And I didn't feel worthy to ever wear this jacket until last year when I finally I had something in the pre-race show. So when Mark Janes threw to me doing a pre-race package, which, you know, was that package that i did you know was that marconi award worthy no it but to me it meant everything it is to you right it was to me because when mark jane said here's mike thompson doing this i was like you you could have you could have said okay you know i mean the the i hung the stars and the moon on that thing because mark jane's tossed to me on the pre-race show of the indianapolis motor speedway radio network and and so when i I put this on today. I thought about that moment again. It's funny you mentioned we were talking about the radio network and things like that because I put this jacket on today and I thought, you know, until last year, I was just wearing a jacket that I was trying to kind of, you know, rep the network and things like that. But I felt like there's just this tiny, small sliver of me now that's part of the radio network forever. And and from last year's, you know, all the oddities and all the weird things that happened in 20, 2020, People are going to be able to go back in 2020, and they're going to hear me in the pre-race show. Of the 20, and, and, and you, I can't overstate how important that is to me and what that means to me because I'm on the same network Sid Collins was, and Donald Davidson, and Howdy Bell, and Jerry Baker, and you know and all Paul these, Page, yeah, yeah, Paul Page, Larry Henry, Bob Jenkins. I mean, these people are all my these people are all my heroes, you know. So I'm sitting here thinking. I, you know, I'm, I know I'm not worthy to be named with any of those folks. I mean, at all, not even close. But the fact is that when I put this jacket on today, I thought, you know what? You got to be on that network one day. And so, you know, I feel really good about that. Really good. It's pretty cool. And it makes you wonder if what you worked on isn't heard by people in 70 plus years, which includes, by the way, the possibility of that, we know that it's possible, I should say, because we have audio from a race that is over 70 years old in what Mike believes might be the oldest radio audio of the Indianapolis 500 in existence. And we're going to play it for you next on Beyond the Bricks. Now we're getting into my speed here, baby. Look, man, I, I said the other night, I didn't tell you this because I wanted to surprise you, but I said, look, you can only play Delta Force so many times. I love the Delta Force, but, I, 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 but we play it a lot. I don't lot. disagree. And so I said, I said, let's mix and match a little bit. So I pulled out a couple little surprises for you tonight. I gave you the Papyrus theme, and I gave you the ABC Sports old school. So I mean, that's that's strong. It's really strong. Uh, Beyond the Bricks continues. Jake Quarry here along with Mike Thompson. Mike, uh, this might be the best piece of audio that we have, right? I'm not sure how long it is, but I know how old it is, and you went way back in the archives on this one. This is a short segment, but uh, it's really cool. So in this is from 1939, and to my knowledge, this is the oldest surviving clip of any coverage of the 500. Now, 
there was some there was some brief coverage of the 500 in the 20s uh that dates back to the 20s when there were some different radio stations started covering the 500 the first real major coverage started in 1928 when uh nbc covered the last half hour of the race live um the famous announcer graham mcnamee was the uh the lead anchor for that then there was a couple years where they didn't do um any kind of coverage again and then they were back nbc was doing what we know from the early 50s they were kind of doing the updates so this is, to my knowledge, though, the oldest clip of the Indianapolis 500 that we know exists. This is from 1939. The anchor that you'll hear is Charlie Lyons. And what I really like about this clip, I'll tell you on the back on the backside about what I really like about this clip. Ten laps or 25 miles. In first position is car number 10, driven by Jimmy Snyder at an average speed of 124 and a half miles per hour, five miles per hour faster than the speed of last year. In second place, car number 45, driven by Louis Meyer. In third place is car number two, driven by Wilbur Shaw. In fourth place is car 47, driven by Shorty Catlin. However, since that time, uh, Shorty has had to pull into the pit, so he has undoubtedly lost out on that position, which would move the car that was in fifth up to fourth, and that is Ed Horn. In sixth position is Chet Miller of the same team. In seventh position, 15, Rex Mays. Eighth position, number 17, George Bailey. Ninth position, number 16. Maury Rose, and in 10th position, car number 54, driven by Cliff McGare. There you have the story at the end of 25 miles of this race. Roscoe Taylor, the famous speed flyer, is right down the finish line talking to some of the officials. And over on the starting stand with set line is Gene Tunney, who is the uh, uh, honorary uh, referee of this race, and who waved that old blue flag to tell the boys that the race was on and would be on. Uh, with good luck and no rain this afternoon, uh, we estimate that the race will be run in four hours and 15 minutes for 500 miles. So that was Charlie Lyon, who was the uh, NBC announcer at the time. And what I love about that particular clip is he's doing the 10-lap rundown, which continued through the 50s. You know, Sid would say, for those of you keeping your charts at home, and they would have Charlie Brockman or, or uh, you know, later on John DeCamp would do it. They're still doing that today on on the radio network. We're still having the ten lap rundowns and things like that. So, something that was was first done in the 1930s is still a part of the broadcast today. That's one of my favorite parts of that clip. By the way, he was close in his estimate. The time of the race in 1939 was not four hours and fifty minutes or fifteen minutes. It was four hours twenty minutes and forty seven seconds. So not bad in terms of the estimate. There were three future winners in that race. You already had the winners, former winners of Wilbur Shaw. Louis Meyer, uh, Kelly Patillo, and Floyd Roberts. I take that back. There were a, a pair of future winners in that race. Maury Rose, as you heard him mention, Floyd Davis was also in that race. Mike, let me ask you, I'm going to show my naivete perhaps here before we hear from Wilbur Shaw. Maybe I heard this incorrectly. Did he say we had a blue flag to start the race? He said blue as opposed to green. That is correct. Would they have run or waved a blue flag or was it in fact has it always been the green flag and he simply misstated i think he misstated but there there was actually at the beginning of the 500 they would rave they would wave a red flag signifying that the course was clear so it has changed over time actually okay so nonetheless uh wilbur shaw let's talk a little bit about wilbur shaw i know that you are a a huge fan not only of wilbur shaw's legacy but just his overall i guess significance within the speedway well i mean 
as far as I'm concerned, we would probably not be sitting here right now talking about the Indianapolis 500 if it was not for Wilbur Shaw. Because Wilbur Shaw and Tony Holman, of course, but Wilbur Shaw was so instrumental in saving the Speedway. So when he came and, and saw the condition of the Speedway after the Second World War, you know, he made it his mission to find somebody to save it. He originally tried to put together some investors to buy the Speedway from from Eddie Rickenbacker to to put it on and put on continue to put on the race. He wasn't able to do that, but instead he found the right person to do it uh, in Tony Holman. And Tony Holman said, okay, I'm going to do this, and you're the president of the Speedway. And those two were a tremendous team. And, you know, so we, we think of Wilbur Shaw in two different ways. And if you, if you had to put a Mount Rushmore of drivers together and a Mount Rushmore of important figures solely of just their importance to the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Wilbur Shaw would be on both of them. Because Wilbur Shaw is a three-time winner as a driver and one of the greatest drivers of all time. And then, if you think about his his incredible importance in saving the Speedway, uh, he would be on the Mount Rushmore for that as well. In a weird fun fact that's really fun for only I, um, or for only me, I should say grammatically correct, uh, Wilbur Shaw and I have something in common in the fact that when I was born, I was born in Methodist Hospital, but at that time my family lived in Shelbyville, which is where Wilbur Shaw was born. Uh, Wilbur Shaw, of course, a three-time winner. In 1939, that you just heard was the second of his three wins. And we have audio of Wilbur Shaw with Sid as well, correct? Correct. So at that same party that we heard from Ray Haroon earlier in the show, uh, Wilbur Shaw comes up to Sid's microphone live on the mutual broadcast system, and he will say a few words with Sid Collins. So this is from 1951, uh, Sid Collins and Wilbur Shaw at the mutual broadcasting systems uh, broadcast of the Borg Warner Party. A great man for racing and a great guy personally, Wilbur Shaw. Thank you so much, Sid. That's that's a, a perfectly wonderful send-off. Wilbur, we want to ask you about some uh, experts' diagnoses of the race tomorrow. What effect do you think so many rookie drivers in the lineup will have this year? Well, I know one thing. These rookies, that, as we call them, are quite competent. They've proven that in their driver's tests and in the qualifying trials. And I can assure you that the old-timers are really going to have to get in there and pitch to keep those rookies from winning this automobile race. Wilbur, I know as a goodwill ambassador for the Speedway, you've done a lot of traveling since last May 30th when you were on the same mutual microphone with our good friend Bill Slater. That's Where have right. you been? Oh, gosh, we've been every place, uh, Sid, really, from coast to coast and border to border. And uh, I've been over on... Uh, uh, with Bill and, and his hunting and fishing club also. Is that right? Well, That's wonderful. Right. Wilbur, I know the track is in wonderful shape, and with the fastest qualification speeds ever, we'll have the greatest race ever tomorrow. There's no question about it, Sid, and we're delighted uh, with, with such a competent field and uh, with the promise of good weather tomorrow. We're just overjoyed, really. Thank you, Wilbur Shaw. We certainly wish you were going to be in the race, too. I do, too, Sid. I'm sure you do. Again, that was 10 years after Wilbur Shaw... Um, had taken last the checkered flag, right? And then he saw Lee Wallard win in that race the next day. Yep, that's an amazing piece of audio. And I know my dad in Toledo is excited about that because my dad's hero was Wilbur Shaw, loved Wilbur Shaw growing up. And so I, I know he's pretty excited about that clip. Lee Wallard won the race in 1951, by the way, at an average speed of 126.244 miles an hour. Interesting that they mentioned that they wanted it to be a safe race because for the most part it was actually in 1951 uh, a safe race in terms of those you know back in the day when you would have large pileups you didn't necessarily have that in 
the 51 race. Great stuff tonight. Great stuff from Ray Haroon as well as Ralph De Palma, Wilbur Shaw, Mike Thompson. Thank you for putting all of that together. Matter of fact, it was so much fun. I'm going to be a little disappointed when the month ends, but we got two left and we'll do it all again tomorrow night. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. All right. I appreciate everybody tuning in tomorrow night, 8 o'clock again. Please join us, will you? It'll be the penultimate running, but the running nonetheless of Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.